We're glad you've joined us on Songs of Praise, an hour of musical reflection to encourage your heart.
Also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also.
listening to Songs of Praise. It's our desire to encourage and uplift your thoughts to our loving Creator God.
I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness seems to I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the 
Psalm 69 verse 16 says, Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies.
headed who knows where On they go through private pain Living fear to fear Laughter hides their silent cries Only Jesus hears People need the
Songs of Praise endeavours to draw your heart, mind and soul to a close relationship with your Saviour, Jesus Christ.
Join us again next time on Songs of Praise, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio, to enjoy more uplifting music. Today, in 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading, we are continuing Banish the Night by the late missionary pilot and pastor Len Barnard, read by Clive Nash. The book is set in Papua New Guinea and is broadcast with the kind permission of Pacific Press and is available in print and digital editions online. Continuing Chapter 4, The False God, Kerr. Nevertheless, this incident cast such a gloom over the community that the work progressed sluggishly. One day I watched the workers as they attempted to raise two heavy 17-foot posts held together by two crossbeams near the top. They planned to push this cumbersome framework upward with two forked poles until the parts were nearly vertical and then dropped them into holes. Several were shouting instructions at the same time confusing the two pushing groups and another group pulling with a rope. Without warning, just as the poised posts were ready to drop into the holes, one of the pushing poles slipped. With a sickening thud, the heavy timbers struck the ground. It seemed that none of the workers had been struck by the falling framework, but one form farther away lay face downward. Dashing over, I saw a man struck with devilish accuracy on the top of his head by one of the forked pushing poles. His skull had been perforated. As I bent over the bleeding victim, I realised he would not survive. A wild melee of primitives crowded around, already daubing themselves with mud and throwing dirt into the air to demonstrate their mourning. The air rang with their despairing wails. On impulse, I swung around in time to see wild-eyed Timber, one of the workmen, raise his axe above my head. Leaping to my feet, I quickly disarmed him, but a look of hatred lingered in his eyes. As the body of the dead man was carried away, the lamentations grew louder and louder. Yells across the adjacent gully informed the father of the unfortunate youth of the distressing tragedy that had befallen his only son. Overcome with anguish, he severed four of his fingers with one deft stroke of his tomahawk. Blood streaming from his hand, he frantically raced across the gully to meet the frenzied mob. In despair, I wearily trudged back to my house. My wife and the two nurses, who had only recently arrived, were preparing lunch. Our six-year-old was lying on a rug on the floor as I mounted the steps and opened the door into the living room. Turning, I met the glaring eyes of Temba. With several other men armed with long fighting spears, he had followed me to the house. Shouting, Temba sprang up the steps, accusing me of the death of the lad because I'd built the church on the Sing Sing ground. Assuring him of my deepest sympathy and my willingness to make any reasonable compensation, I told him also that I refused to negotiate while he and his friends were in such a threatening mood. Temba moved to enter the house. I shut the door and fastened its flimsy latch. He pushed it open. Three times I shut the door and three times, spurred on by his supporters, he pushed it open. Finally, I warned Timber not to do this again, but he was now beyond reason and advanced once more. The situation was desperate, so stepping up to him, I shoved him down the steps. 
He walked to the side of the steps below me, thick lips curled as if in anticipation of savage revenge. Looking up, he uttered not a word, though intense hatred burned in his bloodshot eyes. The spell was broken. Noticing his helplessness, his friends reluctantly followed him as he slunk away to catch up with the mourners still trailing across the gully. All through the encounter, silent prayers had been ascending from all of us in the house. I am sure guardian angels protected us. After this, I engaged another group of men to complete the church. The new supervisor was Jobik, a Christian, who cautioned his labourers to work expeditiously, their hearts continually uplifted to God, who would enable them to finish their task to his glory. Each morning, before a hammer was lifted, the God-fearing Jobik led his labourers in prayer and asked his Heavenly Father for protection. Steadily, the work advanced, and soon the framework was ready for its kunai grass roofing and plaited bamboo sides. When the last rafter was nailed to the peak of the roof, the carpenter was about to toss his hammer thirty feet to the ground before climbing down. He called to the men below to beware the falling hammer. Then he tossed it to one side. The falling hammer struck one of the labourers, who was absent-mindedly walking by, splitting his forehead to the bone. Although he was severely shaken, his skull had not been fractured. After being sutured, the wound healed quickly, a great relief to me. The church was completed without further misfortunes and dedicated to the worship of the true God. For several years, a host of tribesmen joined hearts and voices in thanksgiving to their blessed Redeemer in this chapel. Thus, peons of praise replaced the dirges of heathenism, and the supremacy of the true God was vindicated among the highlanders of New Guinea. Chapter 5. Kai As months mounted into years and confidence in modern therapy increased, more and more leprosy patients clamoured for admission to the colony. Instead of the old treatment of painful injections of Kolmurgra oil, we administered DDS, diaminodiphenyl sulfone, given orally twice a week. Although this did not offer any radical cure, in most cases where treatment was begun early, it did arrest the course of the disease. Among those who came in for treatment in the early years was Kai, a filthy loincloth and a bunch of leaves his only clothing. For a while he was lost among many other patients, but then we noticed that he attended worship regularly. Kai became deeply interested in spiritual things, making himself useful as an interpreter in the church and eventually joining the baptismal class. Soon the colony's first baptism was held in the Turuk River. It was satisfying to see the first fruits of our struggle against paganism symbolically buried and resurrected with their Lord. Later, the small group, Kai among them, gathered near the hospital where their many friends shook their hands. I shall never forget the sight of these converts, their faces beaming with joy under the arch of a perfectly formed rainbow produced by a nearby rainstorm. Hearing that two local chiefs named Gip and Y were preparing for a Kerr Sing Sing, Kai asked them to visit the colony. Upon their arrival, he took them into the church. 
That week, the Sabbath school lesson had discussed the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, leaving a deep impression on Kai. Hanging from the rostrum was a picture roll depicting God in flaming majesty, giving his law to Moses. Pointing to this graphic picture, Kai told his guests of the true God who created the world and everything in it. He explained that God expected man to obey his law, just as the government wanted all tribesmen to keep its laws. Kai, deeply in earnest, displayed considerable persuasive powers as the chief listened in rapt attention. When he had finished, they were convinced that they should abandon their worship of Kerr because this displeased the great God of the heaven and the earth. Though they knew they would encounter opposition from some of their tribesmen, they agreed to do this. As the chiefs left, I told Y that a group from the colony would visit him and his people the following Sabbath. At the appointed time, we threaded through the gardens of Kau Kau, crossed two streams, and climbed a steep ridge to the tribal Sing Sing ground. As we approached, we all sang lustily, E got place where E good palamore, pigeon English version of There's a land that is fairer than day. Surely the mountains in this part of New Guinea were beginning to break forth into singing. We found Chief Y sitting with a group of his men. The atmosphere was decidedly unfriendly, and Y received me coolly. Obviously, the tribesmen were reluctant to relinquish their sacred stones. To avoid embarrassment, I assured them that we had not come to take away their valued stones unless they wished to serve their living God. All we wanted to do was to tell them about this great God who was superior to all other gods. At the rear of the main group of men stood three others who had smeared dirt on their bodies to show their displeasure. Behind them rose the tall barricade surrounding the sacred area that held their holy stones. They were guarding the entrance to this inner sanctum. Across the pathway I noticed several long twigs pushed into the ground. This is the New Guinea way of saying, keep out. Then Kai stepped forward with the picture roll showing Mount Sinai and told the people in their own language about the big fella papa on top, who gave his law to men for their own good and wanted them to obey it. Slowly they thawed and prejudice gave way to interest. They drank deeply of the words of life and were intrigued by the story of a God who loved them so much that he wanted to take them to a better land. This God was very different from Kerr, who offered no comfort for the future and had to be continually appeased. At this juncture, Chief Y stood up and, speaking for the tribe, asked if we would send them an evangelist to instruct them how to live in accordance with the wishes of the big fella papa above. As the sun dipped behind the western mountains and I was about to leave, the chief, to my utter amazement, asked us to follow him and collect the sacred stones. Somewhat diffidently, I entered the enclosure. The huts inside had recently been renovated for the approaching Sing Sing. Near the entrance to one of them was a little grotto in whose dark and mossy recesses were hidden the objects of devotion. Each clan leader except one stepped forward and grasped his treasured stone. Then we walked outside. One by one, with dignified ceremony, each man made a short speech and ostentatiously handed me his stone until there were fifteen. 
We took these back to the mission as evidence that another tribe had disowned Kerr and acknowledged the superiority of the God of Heaven. A few days later, we made a visit to Gipps' tribe. On this occasion, Pastor F. T. Maberly recently appointed the first president of the Western Highlands Mission after successfully pioneering mission work among the tenacious warriors of the Wabag Valley accompanied us. This tribe also gave up its stones. At the request of the people of Chief Wise tribe, Pastor Elwyn Martin, the local district director, decided to send a national evangelist. I offered an interpreter, who accompanied him to the village about a week later. As the two neared Wise Sing Sing ground, they were accosted by a group of unfriendly men. The missionaries explained that they had been invited by the chief, but they were threatened with death. One man picked up a stout stick and said he would beat them to death if they did not move quickly. They fled. A deluge of rain descending just then increased the dejection of the evangelist and the interpreter. It was too late and too far to return to the Hansonite colony. A sympathetic tribesman offered them a deserted hut in which to sleep. They were able to build a fire, but no food was given them. The following morning they returned to us, crestfallen and hungry. Eight days later, a party of excited men came at dusk to the colony, bearing a crude stretcher on which lay a child, the bone above her elbow protruding through her flesh. She was in acute pain. Nine-year-old Piam had fallen off a big rock while playing. The nurses prepared the instruments and anaesthetized the patient. While I was reducing the fracture, a sudden commotion outside the door of the operating room heralded a rushing, demented man, Piam's father. Grief-stricken, he had smeared his body with mud and severed a finger with his tomahawk. With blood dripping from the stump, he rushed in, knocking sterilized instruments flying. Obviously believing his unconscious daughter was dying, he pushed through to the operating table and clutched the girl to him. He poured out his sorrow in loud sobs and unintelligible words. We were unable to pull him away until helped by several nurses. They took him from the room, still loudly protesting and with blood trickling from the stump of his finger. Thus freed, we completed our tasks, applied a plaster cast, then carried little PM to the grass hut ward. There her father, now composed, tenderly cared for her. To be continued... Tune in again next week for the next episode of Banish the Night, written by Len Barnard and read by Clive Nash. Let's listen to William Ackland as he shares a psalm from his paraphrase of the Bible called The Gift. Today we are looking at Psalm 16, which again is the psalm of David. And the theme of this psalm is Hope in God, the Messiah's victory. Watch over me, O God, for I put my trust in you. I think in my heart that I have said to the Lord, you are truly my Lord. The only good in me is from you. And to your people on the earth I say, they are most precious 
and I rejoice when I am with them. Those who give their worship to another god will have unending sorrows. I would never pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor even let their names pass my lips. Anything I desire in life, I want to come from you. You uphold me and provide for me every day. The borders of my land are in the choicest place. Truly, I can say, I have a delightful inheritance. I will always praise the Lord, who guides my life aright. You gave me visions in the night to teach me your way. The Lord fills my whole horizon. Because he is always with me, I shall not stumble and fall. Therefore, I am jubilant, praising God with heart and voice. My life will rest securely in you. I know that you will not leave me where the dead rest, nor will your Holy One be corrupted in his tomb. Every day you show me the way to life. In your presence is ultimate joy, and from your hand come eternal pleasures.